amazing to sing that we are children of God, and yet that is what you have achieved through Jesus, your Son. And so, Father God, I pray you would be a good father, as we know you are speaking to us, and we would be good children, listening and obeying. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please do take a seat and please do grab that Bible again if you've got it there or open it up in your device. Hebrews chapter 10, uh, chapter 12, sorry, Hebrews chapter 12 and sentences 25 uh, to 29. Though we're going to focus on 25 to 27 and that little paragraph uh, there. As I say, it's page 1211. Uh, It's quite easy right now at this point Uh, to create a sense of instability. Uh, For example, this morning, over my cup of tea, I read Theresa May's letter to the nation. I don't know if you've had a chance to read that yet. She's written, or at least published it this morning, a letter to the nation about the negotiations, the signing, the treaty, whatever word you want to give it, as she attempts to create some kind of stability in what, through, through at least the media's lenses, has been a very unstable and difficult political time. I, I could point and prod at that, and certainly for some of us who are more politically aware, that causes us all sorts of uncertainty and, and, and shaking in our, our boots, if you like, about what's going on. But I wouldn't have to go political. I, I could go almost anywhere, couldn't I? Actually, it wouldn't take long before I started to talk about our, our physical abilities. I have moved into the second half of life. Statistically speaking, I have less to come than I've had, though hopefully quite a long time. Um, but I'm past that middle age point, that middle marker. And actually, what I've learned about that is my body is starting to disintegrate. I never anticipated that at 21. I thought that was a thing of myths and legends. I have legs that don't work. My, my, my chest is now in my drawers. I once had the six-pack. I've got the whole barrel. I can do the lot now, right? I can do the lot. But for some of us, that's a very real thing, isn't it? Actually, we had such confidence in our physical health, and that seems to have been taken away from us and has caused all sorts of uncertainty, fragmentation, worry in our lives. Or I could talk about finances, couldn't I? And the challenge and the struggle to make financial ends meet. But more so the challenge that happens when you seem to have had everything in place. The income was rock solid, all was going fine. And then that seems to be snatched away from you in some way, shape or form. The job you thought was secure, which is no longer yours. A, A house that you had no idea had problems and yet something that occurs in its maintenance, which isn't covered by insurance. And all of a sudden, your mortgage is greater than the value of the house that you own. And how do you manage that? All sorts of things can happen, can't they, financially. And that security, that place you thought it was safe to stand, is no longer safe. Or I could talk, couldn't I, uh, gently, tentatively, of course, but I could talk about mental and emotional stability. That many of us thought actually the one thing we did have was a depth of capacity when it came to our mental strength. And then something occurs, something happens. We can't even put our finger on it. And yet that all seems to have disappeared. And we're left very anxious, unsure, and perhaps experiencing and making choices we never imagined would be ours to have to make. The reality is there is something deep within the human soul that longs for security. That we long for something or somewhere which we know cannot be shaken. And we look for it in all of those different categories I've just described. All of us do. I'm not talking about Christians or non-Christians or spiritual people or non I'm just talking about human nature longs for that place of security. 
It's described here, if you look at your Bibles in sentence 28, it's described here, sentence 28, a a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's what we long for. We long to receive a kingdom, to live in a place, to belong somewhere that just cannot be shaken. Whether it's physical security, mental and emotional stability, financial certainty, political landscape-wise, that cannot be shaken. Well, at the heart of our passage, and we'll get there in a few minutes, at our heart of the passage is the offer of an unshakable kingdom, is the offer of a place that we can reside where there is full security and safety. One of the challenges of it, though, is you have to give up all the cheap imitations. One of the challenges of it is you cannot have a foot in both camps. The only way to actually receive this kingdom of the crucified king, we'll see in a minute, is actually by having an open hand with all the others. And that is a challenge, isn't it? Right, let's open our Bibles, if you close them again, and let's have a look at this passage and work through it. What I'd like to do, first of all, is just to give you the context and remind you where we have been, because it will make a lot more sense of where we're going. If you look at the couple of paragraphs before, sentences 18 to 24, and if you remember from last week, if you're here, it's a contrast between two mountains. The first mountain, 18 to 21, is a, a reminder of a physical, actual event Back in Exodus chapter 19, hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, where God gave his Ten Commandments. It was a dramatic and fearful and and volcanic kind of moment. And actually, uh, it ends, sentence 21, with terror. Even Moses is terrified, and it says, trembling with fear. That real historical event, which occurred hundreds of years earlier, is there to remind us of God's rightful wrath at our rebellion. It's there to remind us of what the human condition actually is, absent of Jesus. God rightfully furious at our rebellion. But then the second mountain couldn't be more different, uh, sentences 22 to 24. It's called Mount Zion here, and this is the great promised future place of God's kingdom. And where the first one has just Moses in absolute terror, this second mountain, have a look at sentence 22, has thousands upon thousands in joyful assembly. has a totally different feel. It reminds me of the time I went to the Notting Hill Carnival, and I clearly remember coming out of the tube station, teeming full of people, shoulder to shoulder, shuffling out of the tube station like this, but everybody happy, everybody celebrating, balloons, and I remember a bagpipist, I have no idea, but a bagpipist, why he was there, blasting away on the old haggis under his arm. Fantastic time. Well, that's the kind of image of this second mountain, Mount Zion, in total contrast. And where the first mountain, though it was a real historical event, is there to remind us and to represent God's rightful anger at our rebellion, this second mountain is there to remind us of God's wonderful grace because of his son's sacrifice. His amazing grace and kindness and welcome because of his son's sacrifice. That's the contrast. And what we have in today's little section, sentence 25 to 27, is two further contrasts between these two mountains. But now it's much less theory and much more practice. Two contrasts that actually drill right down into the center of who we are as humans. Real for us, but I also want you thinking about your neighbors, 
your loved ones, your work colleagues, and how we help them grapple with the reality of Jesus Christ and the huge security he brings into the human soul. It is for us, but we are messengers who carry hope to other people. The first contrast, then, is in sentence 25 and is all about how we listen. The second contrast will be in sentence 26 to 27, and it's all about where we place our security and confidence. Let's have a look at the first one, then, how we listen. Sentence 25 says this. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we, if we turn away from him, who warns us from heaven? The contrast here is about a willful refusal to listen, a self-imposed deafness. It reminds me of our dog at home who has selective hearing, without doubt. He chooses to be deaf at moments, and when he is, he does not escape, at least my frustration. Yeah, he cannot. Well, he, here, the writer to the Hebrews is reminding them of that first mountain, that historical event when God gave them the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, recorded for us in a, in a story called Exodus, a history book called Exodus, where there God spoke to them and they chose not to listen and they did not escape the consequences of that. Let me remind you of the story. You don't need to turn to it. It's in Exodus 19. When God first speaks there, he gives just ten instructions, just ten, just ten. Let me remind you of the first two. This is Exodus 19, sentence 1 and 2. First thing that God says is, you shall have no other gods before me. Me alone. Instruction number two, you shall not make for yourselves an image in the likeness of anything and you shall not bow down and worship it. Pretty clear instructions, aren't they? I'm the only God you shall have, and you will not even make an image or a statue and pretend it is a God and act in worship towards it. What do they do? A few chapters later on, Exodus 32, it says this. When the people saw Moses was so long in coming down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron, Moses' deputy and brother, and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. And so Aaron made an idol cast as a calf and he built an altar and all the people sacrificed and worshipped there. It's amazing, isn't it? The first two instructions, don't have any other gods and don't make an idol and worship it. And before Moses has even got to the bottom of the mountain, they're gathering around Aaron who should have known better and Aaron makes them a gold statue out of their own smelted jewellery and then Aaron encourages them to worship it. It's a willful decision not to listen, a self-imposed deafness. They know what God is saying, but they choose not to listen. And here in Hebrews it says, they do not escape that refusal. So four sentences later on in the Exodus story, God speaks and says this, I have seen what the people have done, My anger burns against them, and I will destroy them. And on that day, 3,000 perished. And in fact, friends, 3,000 is an act of mercy. God was going to wipe the lot out, and Moses intervened, and God in his grace only killed 3,000. The point is, you see, if you refuse God as your God, then he'll allow you to live 
as if he is not your God, under the full consequences of your rebellion. If you say, I do not want you, God, as my God, God ultimately will say, okay, then you cannot escape my rightful wrath if you reject me. It's very stark. And it's stark for me, because as many of you know, that those outside of Hannah and my boys who I most love and most care for, my own family and siblings, consciously, intentionally are refusing Jesus. I've written letters, I've given books, I've spoken personally, and I've broken my heart in prayer. Most of them can articulate back to me the great good news of Jesus better than I can do it myself. It is not a lack of hearing. It's a lack of obeying. And they will not escape. They will not escape if they do not listen. And that's what he says here back in Hebrews, isn't it? Sentence 25. See to it you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? And so there's the first kind of contrast in this refusal of them to listen and the risk that we will not. Now, if you're anything like me, (laughs) and I suspect you are, the question now is, well, what is God saying? Like, if I must listen to God, if my friends must listen to God, if my friends must hear what he is saying, if my neighbours must, what is that God actually saying? What, this whole thing they've got to hear? What, what is God actually saying? And what does listening look like? Does that make sense, those two questions? Well, I don't need to speculate. You don't need to speculate. The answer is right here to those two questions. The first question is, is what is God actually saying? Well, look back in your Bibles now at sentence 24 and 25. They link together. Have a little look. The answer's here. Sentence 24, you've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant or a new promise, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. So the word that we mustn't refuse is the better word of Jesus's blood. Now, Jesus's blood is poetic language for Jesus's death. We use it all the time, don't we? A few weeks ago around remembrance, we spoke of the blood of those who died and what it says to us today. It's just normal poetic language to describe Jesus's death. The better word, the distillation of everything that God is saying is found in the death of Jesus. That's what we need to hear. That is the better word that we must not self-impose deafness and turn away from. And last week we talked about the death of Jesus. I introduced you to two words, or I used two words, propitiation, <laughs> some of you thought I was swearing, right? And pardon, pardon, right? Propitiation and pardon. When Jesus dies on that cross, what he does is willingly accepts the rightful fury of God at our rebellion. He willingly accepts it. We just sang with our loud voices exactly this in the songs that Dee had chosen. As Jesus dies, he exhausts the rightful fury of God at our rebellion, our failure, and our brokenness. All of it is poured out on Jesus, and God's rightful anger is satisfied, appeased, And therefore it means God, who is now propitiated, his anger is now satisfied, God, the judge of all, can now issue a pardon for our crimes. The full penalty for our crimes has been taken. And because God is just, he will not punish the same crime twice. 
punished on Jesus, and we can be pardoned. Now, that is the heart of the Christian message. That is the better word that God longs for us to hear and not refuse and not accept. That Jesus would die in our place for our rebellion and sin, taking the full anger of God upon himself, fully absorbed, exhausted. God is fully satisfied. His justice is fully dealt with. And now the pardon can be issued to us to be free. And what does it mean to respond to that word? What does it actually mean to listen and obey? Well, the answer is here again. Would you have a look at your Bibles again? Sentence 22 to 24. Do you remember last week, if you were here, I said there was a phrase repeated three times? If you've got a Bible in front of you, see if you can spot it again, 22 to 24. The phrase is, you have come to. Do you see it three times? Sentence 22, you have come to Mount Zion. Sentence 22 again, you have come to thousands upon thousands. And sentence 23, you have come to God. You have come to. That's what it means to listen. You've understood that Jesus died. There he is on the cross. He's died in your place for your rebellion. Now to hear that and obey means to come to him, to move towards him, to trust him, and to do that regularly and often and freshly and with relevance and reality. At the end of the sermon this morning, we're going to have communion. It's under this cloth here. It's the physical representation of Jesus' death. And as we sing songs, I'm going to invite you to stand when you're ready and come to Jesus and come to his crucifixion and come with your rebellion and come with your brokenness and come with your errors and come with your pains and then leave them with Jesus who has promised to bear them all. So you are free. He will propitiate God so God can pardon you, but you have to come to him. And of course that's what we're saying to our friends and our colleagues and our neighbours and our children and our grandchildren is helping them to understand propitiation. Jesus took it all that you deserved so God might grant them pardon and they just need to come to Jesus and trust so just take a moment and think when it comes to that moment that you're going to get out of your chair and you're going to come to Jesus if you can do that as an act of trust if trust doesn't describe your relationship with Jesus yet then hold communion for a special time in your future and don't participate today but if trust does then think for a moment what are you going to come to Jesus with what is it this week that you have done, you have said, the motivations you have had which have dishonoured God. What are you going to come to that table with and leave Jesus with? And leave as a pardoned person. Okay, there's a second contrast. There's only two, so let's get back in our Bibles again and see the second big thing that we're going to be taught this morning. The first, as I say, is all about listening to God and what God is saying. The second big contrast between the first mountain, the giving of the Ten Commandments, and where we live now, Mount Zion, this new place of trusting Jesus, the second contrast is about what we trust. It's a contrast in the intensity of what God is going to shake and what is left after that. Let me read these couple of sentences. Sentence 26. It says, At that time his voice shook the earth. 
But now he has promised, once more I'll shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken. That is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So you see the contrast. The beginning of sentence 26, at that time, Mount Sinai, when the Ten Commandments are given, that point in history, at that time, his voice shook just the earth. It was dramatic and stunning, but it was one mountain shaking away, earthquake, tectonic plates moving, volcano, he shook just that mountain. Now look at the contrast, it carries on, but now he has promised, he's made a promise, that once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. The promise is that God will come back. Not just ten words, ten commandments given then, but the living word and full word of God, Jesus himself, coming back. That's the promise. And when Jesus comes back in that moment... Not just one mountain will shake, but the whole created order. Everything that has ever existed will feel the shaking of Jesus' return. That's the promise as he comes back. It's a promise that was first made way back in a place called Haggai by a man called Haggai, who was a prophet of God and could predict the future. And Haggai saw it way into, even beyond our futures, way into the future. And in Haggai chapter 2, he says, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations. One useful commentator on this describes it like this, a chap called Brooks. Just have a think about this. And what I want you thinking about for a moment is where actually is your confidence? I mean, genuinely, functionally. How important is your bank account? How important is your health, physical or mental? How significant is it that your children behave and reflect well on you? All right? Because all these things are going to dissolve All these things are not worth placing your confidence things. All these things will let you down. This is what one of the commentators says. All the business of the Old Testament priesthood, of sacrificial systems and festivals, the things the Hebrews seem so keen to return to, all those outward things in which people like us put their trust, ornate cathedrals, great buildings, royal palaces, stately homes, elected governments, ancient universities, banks and building societies, and stable income, football clubs and star celebrities, all the kingdoms, all the empires, governments and regimes of the earth, from the length and breadth of history, will be shaken to their foundations and collapse in a heap together. Their arrogance and pride will be shattered. Their claims and schemes ruined and none will be left. In fact, when Haggai first made this prediction, he said it was one thing when ten commands came down from God and shook one mountain, but when the whole living promise of God returns in Jesus, when Haggai first made that prediction of the intensity of the reordering of the world that would occur, he first spoke to the places people put their confidence. So in Haggai chapter 2.21, he says, Tell Zerubbabel, what a great name, by the way, that is. If Hannah had been pregnant when I read that name, we would have had a Zerubbabel, just for the sheer comedy value, right? It's like hashtag worst parent ever, right? Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, 
that I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and I'll shatter the power of foreign kingdoms. I'll overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their kingdoms will fail. So my question where we began right at the beginning is where is your confidence and where is your security? Because there will be such an intense reordering of the world that will come in the future when not simply ten instructions from God come down, but the living, breathing word of God, Jesus, comes back, that anything less than him and his crucified kingdom will not stand, will not see you through life. And do you know what God in his kindness so often does? God in his kindness so often shakes those things we're trusting until they break away from us because he's too kind to allow us to keep trusting them. God in his kindness takes away our money. Hannah and I have seen this. We've lived it. It needed that to break me. I would have been a very successful corner office, very well-paid businessman with a broken marriage, with estranged children, destined for hell. And Jesus tore away the money I had as a 27-year-old. Tore it away. Six-figure salary at 27. Tore it away so I wouldn't burn in hell. Because he's that kind. He's torn away my ability to run. So I dare not trust in that physical identity I had as a military man and a rugby player who went to hell with great pectorials. Because he's too kind. They're still quite good. He's too kind. He's too kind. He's too kind not to warn us. And so my question to you now is, what are you trusting, like genuinely? And how are you helping your children and your teenagers and your nursing friends and your chiropractor you visit fortnightly and how are you helping them to see that they're trusting in something that will not last and gives them no security but they can trust in the king and his crucifixion because that lasts forever so we're going to come to this table again and we're going to come and we're going to leave there everything we're trusting that is not Christ We're going to leave there everything we are trusting that is not his crucifixion. We're going to leave that innate desire to trust our finances, our innate desire to trust the upbringing we're giving our children, the innate desire to be seen as a good parent. All these things that we, we think are our security, we're going to leave them there and walk away with just Jesus as our place of security. We're going to come with our sin and leave that, and we're going to come with our security And we're going to leave that. And we're going to walk away with a pardon. And we're going to walk away with a real confidence. Dee and Wendy and Johnny are going to help us with this. They're going to lead us in a few songs. I'm going to pray for us in a moment. And as we're singing, as we're praising, when you feel ready, just come and take communion. Just when you feel ready, just come to the front. As we're singing and praising, ask Jesus to speak to you. As we're singing and praising, ask Jesus to show you why he's taken something away from you. As you're singing and praising, ask Jesus to show you what you're trusting so you will adjust your life before he does it for you. 
ask Jesus to speak to you. And then do not be like Israel, who did not escape when they refused to listen. But instead be the people God wants us to be, knowing he's a good father and obedient as his children. I'm going to pray for us. Shall we bow our heads? Jesus, we long for you to do some work in our hearts and minds this morning.